Good evening, Dan, and Happy New Year. Evening, Omar. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you doing? All all right. I can't get used to that holding music just yet. <laughs> well, I guess uh, maybe we could start the show with a, with a bit of an announcement. This is obviously going to be one of our final, as part of a regular series, I'd say. You've had enough of me, haven't you? It's fair enough. I feel like I've, I've done well to last as long. Yeah, well, that, that is uh, that's sadly not the case, Dan. No, I've, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed these. I remember starting these uh, in COVID and, uh, and really enjoying them over the years. But I'm about to undergo a very big life change, which means my diary and my schedule apparently is about to go out the window. I'm sure you'll tell me all about it. Well, the, the, the reports were that um, we weren't able to offer a significant remuneration package in order to continue on with these. So you can say whatever you want, Omar, but we know the real reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think we've got, we've got some kind of, i say three very Dan and Omar topics to, uh, to kind of round, well, kick off the new year, but also round off, I guess, our regular series. Um, a bit of, well, quite a bit of um, legalese and... Uh, and judgments to, to wade through uh, and then also kind of some pretty big implications i think for for the broader football landscape so should we dive into it should we should we start with super league and the european court of justice ruling um which was i think just before was it 21st of uh, december um so yeah th- this was the this was a story that the esl clubs had uh, eventually taken uh, what well, you're going to clarify this for me, but taking it to a Madrid court and then taking it to a, uh, eventually to European Court of Justice to rule as to whether UEFA um, were kind of having an abuse of power. So take us through the judgment and uh, the implications of the ECJ judgment. Of course. And, um, well, you know, I'm not one to um, to go into too much detail on the law being a lawyer, but um, I think, you know, in truth, and in practice, the the interesting the interesting takeaways from the judgment were I don't think it came as a surprise to many lawyers who had um, been involved or had read previous judgments in relation to these types of cases. And when I say these types of cases, I mean a situation where um, an entity who was a gatekeeper of um, a particular um, sport um, would be in a situation where they could authorize or not authorize a competitor organization um, from doing the same thing. And there have been cases before MotoGP, there's been an ice skating decision as well, where competitors of the incumbent had more or less uh, wanted um, to get athletes from one competition to theirs and um, had complained that the incumbent organizer, event organizer, um, had prohibited and stopped them doing that. And so when we, Omar, had chatted previously about this, um, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of commentators had thought that what the Court of Justice might say, and in fact did in the end, was to say UEFA didn't necessarily at the time have a set of frameworks which uh, ensured that um, an approval process would be um, put in place in a transparent, non-discriminatory, clear and precise way so that there were substantive criteria and procedures. And um, the outcome was effectively that, which was 
what the cause of justice didn't do is say um, Super League is illegal or that Super League is now allowed and should go ahead. What it said was is that UEFA needed to judge any application by any entity on particular um, frameworks and that framework needed to be objective and substantive and non-discriminatory and proportionate and a lot of these different sort of legal buzzwords. And the reason why I say all of that is because now what we have is a situation where A22 and Super League say uh, substantive victory, courts ruled in our favour. But I think once you read the judgment and once we sort of understand the, the premise of what the Court of Justice has said, what the Court of Justice is saying is that UEFA needs to create the framework, which it has done, and then base some objective criteria as to whether that would actually um, fit the authorization process. So I'm sorry if it sounds a hell of a lot more uh, lack of interesting than, um, than the headlines were back at the end of December. But there's lots of, I think, really interesting consequences. And I know we've talked about it as well, and I'm more than happy just, you know, for you to jump in Omar at a particular time. But I think the interesting consequence now is UEFA is still the gatekeeper of that authorization. Um, so I think there would be a query around if A22 or anyone else decided that actually we wanted to start a rival competition to rival the Champions League. Um, and that it was an open competition so that um, there wasn't a closed or semi-closed uh, initial proposal like A22 and Super League had, whether actually there would be the ability of UEFA to refuse such a rival competition. And then there's all of these questions around, well, which clubs would leave? Could they even leave in the UK now in the Premier League? They, they obviously have substantive sanctions and potential processes in place to avoid that happening. Um, the regulator might actually prohibit that as well by the sounds of things as well for a rivals Super League competition. That's not to say that might not be the case in different countries. But what it feels like, and I'd be really interested in your take, Omar, is that there is um, almost a new leverage. Whether there is going to be another Super League or whatever you want to call it, another competition that potentially rivals uh, the Champions League, it feels that there is a bit more leverage now for the clubs um, simply because it's not UEFA or BUST now. It's UEFA as one possibility. But UEFA now are in, um, some would say, a stronger position. They're the gatekeepers, but they're also in a more difficult position because based on EU law, they need to make sure that when they are authorising or rejecting a rival competition, it's done so on these objective grounds. Yeah, I think... Um... There was, you know, I spoke to people in football, particularly in this this kind of space of, um, I guess, governing bodies and and, and leagues and, and so on. And there's a feeling that this judgment could be hugely groundbreaking. I think I think the reality, as you describe it, there is that it's it's probably not. Um, you know, as you say, it's in line with some other judgments. Um, I think partly because the, the original Super League failed, not because of some regulatory hurdle, but from an, a failure to win hearts and minds. Um, yes, um, the, the kind of fan reaction was perhaps less vociferous on the continent than it was here in England. But, but by and large, it fell apart because, you know, the moment the English team started falling out, uh, other, um, other clubs took their lead and, and we were left with just three clubs. So it wasn't really... Whilst they may not have been able to, you know, get it over the line in any case in, in those first, call it a few weeks, 
um, it wasn't really a regulatory failure. Now, now they would have the opportunity um, to, to implement the Super League, but I'm not sure the hearts and minds are there yet um, to go and implement it. Um, and so I think from a club's perspective, it, uh, as, you, as you suggest, Eric, it turns back to, well, we've got this threat of a breakaway. I mean, it's, it may not be the most credible threat, but at the very least, we wouldn't go down in a ball of flames like we did last time. Um, but we may be better off trying to influence things inside the tent, which is, to be honest, what clubs have been doing for the last 30 years or so. If you look at um, changes to the Champions League over time, A, the expansion of Champions League starting from you know, eight teams in a group stage all the way to it's going to be 36 from next year. The, the number of kind of big five league teams in the Champions League, the number of or the reduced number of teams having to go through qualifying stages um, and so on and so forth. Um, has meant that there's been a consolidation of of big teams, as it were, um, in the uh, in the Champions League. So I suspect that'll be the direction of travel. And, and the next big leap is um, teams qualifying for the Champions League based on their performance um, in the Champions League uh, and not linked to the domestic league, um, which was what was in, initially mooted um, as ahead of the 2024 cycle. So there was discussion around this kind of coefficient access. So if, for example, over a five-year period, Man United had built up sufficient coefficient such that if they missed out on the Champions League at the end of this season, they, they might have been able to qualify uh, ahead of a team that actually finished above them in the league table. That got shot down after the Super League uh, was shot down itself. Um, but there is this kind of national uh, coefficient now, which means five English teams should qualify for the Champions League this year, which again reinforces the sense of you know, teams being able to qualify year on year. So, yeah, I think my feeling is um, there will be a kind of consolidation. Um, there will be a move towards an A22 type model, probably, um, over a period of time, i.e. teams staying in the Champions League, even if they perhaps have a poor domestic league season. Um, but I think that will need to happen slowly and by stealth by the clubs because there is still, um, there is still a hearts and minds activity, I suppose. Um, to, to be to be had there for um, for the clubs if they want to implement that. Well, I think <clears throat> I think you mentioned two really good points there. I I think just on that point briefly. I mean, <clears throat> you talk about the stealth um, process, which is exactly right. I mean, if you if you recall, well, I don't need to say if you recall, you know, the Champions League originally was for champions. So if you if you start from that position, and now you say that. Um, I know based on the TFG models, there's still a 70% chance that or something around that, that um, an English team that finishes fifth based on coefficients from this year might get into the Champions League for next year. I mean, there's, there's, there's something of an irony, which is the Champions League being called the Champions League because it's not for champions is the truth, or rather the minor, vast minority of teams in it are the champions of their domestic league from the season before so I think that's the the stealth point and to your point which I think would be an interesting one Omar if you if you feel comfortable just for a couple of minutes um just to talk through those A22 proposals because you know what you know the name the names semi-closed or quasi-closed get banded around but to sort of understand what that process might look like with a number of leagues within a uh, Super League setup, which can be sort of include promotion and relegation. How 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 did the A twenty two guys see that, and how would you class that type of structure? Yeah, so it's three divisions is essentially it's, it's like a separate league. Three divisions: a, a star, a gold, and I think a blue league. 
um, teams would be assigned to a league uh, from year one um, based on some kind of historical performance criteria. They don't define what that is. Uh, and then you'd be promoted and relegated in and out of those te- in and out of those leagues. Um, and in particular, from the Blue League, the bottom league, there'd be a huge level of churn in and out of, of that league. Uh, but of course, it raises the possibility that, you know, again, over a five-year period, um, call it Liverpool, would be assigned into the Star League, but they might have a terrible league season, as they did last year. But they might remain in the Star League because they did well enough in that league, um, despite doing terribly domestically. So that has a big implication on on the Premier League, because suddenly there's a lack of jeopardy on, on Liverpool season in the Premier League. Yes, maybe they're going for the league, but, but they've got European football sewn up, which is a, a big issue. It's a big part of the narrative of, of the league. Uh, and then it also, you know, there's a big play on, on meritocracy um, in the, the A22 proposals. Um, but if you think about some of these surprise teams, some of these teams that have actually been quite well run in, in some of the big five leagues are outside of that. So obviously Leicester in 2016 or Union Berlin more recently, they wouldn't go into the Champions League. They'd actually end up going into this uh, blue league um, and probably fall out of it because there's such huge churn um, in that league, which again undermines one of the principles of, of the A22 proposal, which is to push financial stability and sustainability for clubs, which is a massive issue uh, and is driven a, is a big driver of um, a lot of the Super League type activities. So... Um, yeah, it's it's in my mind it's it's a it's a proposal that says one thing, but but actually does another, which I think a lot of people have commented on, and and I think it's absolutely right. Um, it, there, there's there's just so many issues with, within European football that you're not going to get a solution that that solves all of this. You're not going to have a solution that provides um, st- financial stability for clubs, provides best against best competition, provides. Um, you know, jeopardy within competitions. It's a very difficult um, circle to square. So, yeah, I think the A22 proposals, they say, as I say, they say one thing, but I think they, they're ultimately doing something else. I think, <clears throat> I think you're totally right on, on, on all of that. And what I would also say back to your, one of your original points on, on Super League, I think is probably exactly the point. I it would be surprising if the A22 proposal, Super League, whatever you want to call it, um, manages to come full circle simply because of, as you said, um, the scarring of what's happened previously, I think. But where I think Super League and the Court of Justice decision and club politics and organisational politics mean that this gives a lot of comfort either to the big clubs who can use this judgment as the basis to UEFA of saying, well, we can start a Super League if we want to, and we'll probably do it a lot better next time. So we need to exact more concessions, I presume, Um, which means then that the sword of Damocles hanging over UEFA again as they try and make more concessions, presumably, um, is um, a new entrant that is going to compete with them um, um, at some point in the future. And that's why, interestingly, you know, we had that discussion ages ago on one of these pods, Omar, wasn't it, where we said, well, you know, that um, Super League um, threat has now evaporated, um, at least for the time being, because of the the backlash. I just wonder whether actually it's come full circle and that threat becomes a real, re- very real threat for the next broadcasting cycle and structure cycle. Yeah, I think... Um... The one thing that the clubs have is that if you're making changes to the Champions League format, they they don't 
um, generate the same level of ire as a as a breakaway competition. So that's the the kind of your your ability, as we said, to do things by stealth is is much easier. Um, should, should we get on to agents regs? Um, I know a few people at uh, the FA who had a very very busy Christmas with some of the announcements and some of the the changes that happened there as it relates to um, the, the new agents regs that were proposed by FIFA. So do you want to give us the the background and and what what the so what is? Yeah, of course. And um, again, I think I'll probably just try and focus on the sort of consequences. But in short, um, there was, as some of the listeners will know, a, a, a very substantive UK decision which favoured in almost entirety the agents in relation to um, commission caps um, and for when payments can be um, made to agents. And as a result, the big problem that FIFA now has and continues to have is one of the backbones of its um, FIFA um, exam uh, regulations was that they wanted to cap agents fees at present. um, They came out um, just before Christmas and said what we're going to do because of various decisions, mainly a German decision earlier in the year, is we're going to freeze certain provisions of um, our regulations pending another court of justice decision um, and so as a result um, it's it felt like the FA because they're the ones that I've been dealt with the most and how get all the circulars were somewhat blindsided by this quite late in the um, the, the uh, um, uh, circular from FIFA obviously bearing in mind that the window was opening up in less than a week and so the FA then had to put forward a circular and a new set of regulations governing the what would actually happen so there was actually quite a lot of um, confusion around whether it actually meant that the old rules applied and you didn't need to pass an exam in order to be a FIFA agent from the 1st of January. It turns out you did need to pass the exam. It's just a number of the features of the rules didn't apply anymore. So here we are a week or so into um, the window. And if you want to be able to undertake agent services, you've got to be able to have um, shown um, either you've passed the exam or you're a legacy agent because you you passed the exam a long time ago um, previously. And um, yeah, things are sort of uh, moving to a degree. Now, I know that the FA are completely swamped. uh, Well, a lot of them are with questions, queries, transactions, other things going on. Um, And it's a bit of a learning curve for all of us to be able to get deals done if it's loans, permanents or otherwise in and out of particular jurisdictions, simply because this was all put on um, (coughs) the FA pretty late in the day. Yeah, it was... um... Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it was more the timing more than anything else, obviously right up um, to the edge of the window that um, caused problems. And uh, I, I imagine um, many agents aren't particularly happy with, um, I guess, having been preparing themselves for one jurisdiction and now, or, or one set of rules and now having to, to handle a different set of rules. Yes, exactly right. Um, what had actually happened is... Um, the FA, for example, had consulted on a set of rules. We didn't really hear too much more about it. And then they published those rules quite late in the year. FIFA then come out and say, uh, by the way, some of our rules aren't going to apply anymore. And then the FA has got to go back pretty quickly and then uh, work out which rules then it is going to disapply for a particular period of time. So you can imagine all of the 
concern because this is happening more or less just before Christmas um, and before. So, um, you know, it's kept me busy over my holidays, uh, which my wife is obviously very grateful for and um, has sort of, um, yeah, sort of now fed in and um, eked into the, the January window. And there's also queries about what happens in particular jurisdictions um, uh, where the commission cap actually is um, being removed for particular territories. So, um, you know, all I, I feel sorry for the regulators to a degree here, um, just because there's a bit of a mishmash going on. And as we talked about before, Omar, that there's actually a significant amount of legal cases going on. It's not just Germany, um, uh, you know, across um, Scandinavia, across South America, um, and in a lot of European jurisdictions, there are injunctions and otherwise going on. Um, it's just that actually the UK decision came and the German decision came before um, others. So it's a bit of a waiting brief um, for what will actually happen and the outcome. Likely, actually, it might not even be this year that you get a European court decision um, outcome on um, these regulations. But in the meantime, there's likely to be at least two windows this and maybe even the summer and another winter window before we possibly get to a resolution on this. And what what is a likely outcome here? Is it actually returning to the status quo completely? No, I think the likely outcome will be that the the framework will remain. It's just particular elements, whether particular elements of the new framework will remain like, does the player have to pay their agent? Um, how quickly can the player, uh, can the agent be paid? Um, is multiple representation acting for all the parties going to be allowed? Is the commission cap somehow going to be overturned from the decision in the UK to from a European jurisdiction. There's even things like in South America where, do, do, you know, do there need to actually be more official languages to take the exam in, for example, because obviously um, that was obviously, that was, I say obviously, that was limited to, um, if I remember correctly, English, Spanish and French, I believe. I don't think Germ could be. Um, um, just have to double check that. But it was one of the main languages were was not going to be one of the languages you could take in the exam in, which is obviously a problem for a number. So um, those types of practical issues come to the fore, really, in truth. And again, the the, the sort of issue, in a way, um, is. Now, the, the exams are only going to be taken twice a year or allowed to be taken twice a year. So, um, you know, agents actually in this market obviously can't be uh, can't undertake agent activity unless they've passed this exam. And the next exam is only in the springtime. So you're under quite a lot of pressure to pass the exam in the spring. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to work in the summer window. Yeah, right. So still, still quite a bit of uncertainty. But interesting, yeah, interesting that the, the framework may still be in place. Um yeah, and it's, it's really the details around it. So, but yeah, still, uh, still a lot of uncertainty for agents. I think so, and um, you know that that's why the help of the regulator is obviously really gratefully received from agents and you know lawyers alike. That there has to be a bit of flexibility to sort of understand and that communication, and that's what's happening in this window specifically. And talking about windows for the last few minutes, um, I've read a couple of great pieces of content from you guys in the last two or three weeks before the window opened and, and since. But there was a great um, discussion on Monday Night Football in the UK between Carrig uh, Jamie Carragher was showing some statistics around um, Arsenal's front four. So that would be Odegaard, Saka, um, uh, Martinelli and Jesus and their um, 
shot conversion rate dropping off significantly this year. And obviously then the Ferrari around getting a striker in that can uh, score the goals, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a great piece of analysis and narrative that you did um, around the benefit or the added value that the or otherwise that the January window particularly brings. And so it'd be great just to delve into that for a few minutes, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of obviously Arsenal's form just between Christmas and, and New Year's uh, has probably been the main narrative in, in English football over the last um, few weeks. And yeah, they, they have struggled to score. Um, and obviously everyone then turns to the January window as, as the means to fix that. Um, but really, uh, Jan- January window is so hard to turn your season around. If you look at the types of players that are available um, it's re- obviously it's rarely very good players. Um, I think it's really the exceptions that stand out in your mind. Players like Van Dijk, um, who, who really was an exception, I think, in terms of the quality you could acquire in in January. Um, but even if you do, you know, some of the maths around how much you can turn your season around, um, there, there was a piece in the Times that suggested well Arsenal should go all out for, for Ivan Tony. Um, but if you do a bit of maths around Ivan Tony, who's kind of a who's been a call it fifteen. Um, 15 to 20 goal a season player um, if you take him you know over a half season call it 10 goals or, or assists 7 to 10 goals assists over a half season compare that to someone like Eddie Nketiah who is still scoring maybe 12 to 15 um, goals and assists a season the delta between them is is still only you know 2 to 3 goals a season which when you translate that into points really translates into into maybe one or two points over the course of a half season, which isn't immaterial if you're a club like Arsenal and, and titles are decided by by fine margins. But um, you know, it's it's quite often a smaller impact than what uh, what you would believe from reading headlines around how much clubs should spend on on transfers, particularly in, in January. I suppose Ivan Tony is a bit of a, a different case in the sense that he may be a quite a high quality available player in the January window. Uh, but the other thing to bear in mind, I always come back to the statistic that Aurel from our team pulled together, which is that over 40% of strikers signed in January failed to score uh, over the remainder of the season, which is just an astonishing number um, and a reflection of the fact that you know strikers might come in, they might not settle in, um, they, they might... Um, you know, it's just not easy hitting the ground running in the middle of a season and generally the quality that you're going to acquire at, at this point of the season is going to be a bit lower. Um, so, and in terms of Arsenal's problems, that they're still they're still not playing terribly. I know the game on, on Sunday against Liverpool, they, they really should have been out of sight in the first half and, and maybe um, it was almost like a, a middle finger to, to an analytics community that might say that finishing is, is random. Um, but, it, but it really is. I mean, Arsenal's results will improve after after Christmas. Um, they will probably just about, I think, hang in the title race. Um, they've got catch-up to do now, but but I think their their form uh, over the next couple of months or so probably won't be a world away from, from Liverpool's and Man City's. Um, but the fact is that they've lost ground now on, on both of those teams. And so, you know, a new striker might help a little bit, but it's not going to transform their season, I, I don't think. And I think it's the usual stuff, isn't it, around how it impacts the dressing room from a culture perspective, but also, as we talked about previously, how that fits within the wage structure um, and uh, does that lead to difficulty within the dressing room around how much people get paid um, or otherwise. And 
you know, the, I, I was thinking about it, yeah, like Van Dijk's one. I think Suarez also, I know we're being very Liverpool-centric, but I think Suarez came in January at the same time as Andy Carroll, if I remember. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say, yeah. Same time as Andy Carroll, so does, does that net out? Yeah, I think so, especially when, when Torres went, didn't he, to Chelsea, but then Torres had a you know pretty terrible time um, at Chelsea as a result. So maybe it's actually, I'm, I'm disproving myself with one good signing and then two very poor ones for a Liverpool and Chelsea combined. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, that was a kind of maybe slightly unique set of circumstances um, back, was it 2011, I want to say, window um, with, with, with those teams. But yeah, it is, it's pretty rare. Um and yeah, I think if you're if you're a team uh, at this stage of the season looking to to change things, um, yes, signings can make a difference. But really, I think um, if you can, there's a winter break now, spending a bit of time on the training pitch, and, and really, you know, if you've got a coach as, as good as Mikel Arteta, then really trying to invest on, on on getting the most out of your players. And and you know, Arsenal have been really impressive from set pieces, for example, this season, which is a huge area of competitive edge. That I think is is kind of underplayed. Um, right, I think we're we're pretty much at the hour, and we've managed to whiz through three pretty chunky to- topics. But um, yeah, as I said at the top, I think we're we're going to hit a bit of a pause on on this now for for a period of time. Um, but uh, I think we'll we'll come back and do a few specials when we're done. Yeah, maybe Christmas specials, and so, you know, see who wants us for uh, BBC or ITV or otherwise. But yeah, I just. <laughs> I just wanted to say it's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you. It's certainly not not the end, but um, there's other priorities that um, that mean, yeah, for the time being, we're not going to do this quite as regularly. But um, I think probably even it's every month or six weeks, we'll definitely get back chatting on the, the topical issues that have impacted the sort of um, sports, contractual and performance side. And um, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. So thanks for all your insight, Omar. It's um, been incredibly opening for me and uh, and brilliant to work alongside you. Likewise, Dan. All right, mate. Well, we'll speak again soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundeal an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.